Hey everyone, welcome back to Curbside Consults, one of the podcast series of the New England Journal of Medicine and EJM Group. I'm Clem, a senior editorial fellow. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing Mary Strick, professor of medicine at the University of Chicago, director of the Pulmonary Medicine Service, and director of the Interstitial Lung Disease Program. And she's also one of the authors on the ATS's new 2022 update in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and progressive pulmonary fibrosis. Dr. Streck, welcome to the show. Thanks, Clem. And thanks for your interest in this topic. And then before we get started, I did just want to thank the first and uh, senior author for the privilege of serving, Dr. Ganesh Raghu and Dr. Kevin Wilson, and for their leadership and guidance as we created this guideline. Absolutely. And we appreciate all of your work into creating this guideline. Speaking of which, can you give us a glimpse into the process that went into it and who was all involved and what were some of the discussions that you guys had for this guideline? Sure, I'd be happy to. So this is a joint guideline from a number of different thoracic societies, but there is a formal process for submission that generally, because the authors are in the U.S., starts with the American Thoracic Society. So the proposal is submitted for consideration and then is approved by these international thoracic societies. And the scope is determined ahead of time, as are the questions. So later on, there aren't changes based on some new data or information that's acquired. Then a committee is formed and uh, the members are approved and need to be without significant conflicts of interest. And this committee consisted of experts in interstitial lung disease. And because of the nature of making a diagnosis and treating patients with interstitial lung disease, it's a multidisciplinary body, including chest radiologists and histopathologists. And of course, uh, we had a strong um, methodology team, as I said, under the leadership of Dr. Kevin Wilson. And we also have patient representatives who participated in all of the meetings and in helping us develop and make our recommendations. That's awesome. We have listeners of all different learning stages, but most of our listeners will be familiar with the entity known as idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis or IPF. But this guideline introduces a new disease that I think will be foreign for a lot of listeners, progressive pulmonary fibrosis or PPF. Can you sort of define this syndrome or disease for us and distinguish it for us from IPF? Sure. Idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is a progressive fibrotic lung disease that's characterized by usual interstitial pneumonia pattern on CT and or histopathology and the absence of a known discoverable cause for the parenchymal lung disease or pulmonary fibrosis. Progressive pulmonary fibrosis is a diffuse parenchymal lung disease that can be due to a number of specific causes, including autoimmune-related interstitial lung disease, hypersensitivity pneumonitis from having had a bird or mold in the home. And in that case, there would be treatments that would be directed individually to the underlying cause of the interstitial lung disease. As we've defined progressive pulmonary fibrosis, it's one of these non-IPF interstitial lung diseases where over the course of the preceding 12 months, there's been two of three of the following criteria that have been met, worsening respiratory symptoms. And by that, generally we mean cough or shortness of breath. Two, physiologic or pulmonary function test evidence of disease progression either a decline in the vital capacity or the diffusing capacity, or number three, radiologic evidence of disease progression. 
specific findings that suggest there is worsening fibrosis. Great. Thanks for clarifying that for us. Are there specific diseases that are more likely to end up developing PPF? For example, you mentioned hypersensitivity and pneumonitis as one of the causes of it. Definitely. So I was in clinic this week with a new resident who's interested in pulmonary medicine, and we talked about hypersensitivity pneumonitis, and he goes, well, that's the good one to have because you figure out what inhaled antigen it's due to, and you remove it, and then they do well. And would that that were always the case? And so we know that there's a subset of patients with hypersensitivity pneumonitis who go on to get a fibrotic variant and may, in fact, have progressive disease with UIP fibrosis on CT or histopathology, and unfortunately, a poor prognosis. And so those patients, sometimes despite antigen removal, or half the time we don't find the antigen, a subset of them will fall under this category. In addition, there's the broad group of patients who have connective tissue disease or autoimmune-related interstitial lung disease, and a subset of them will develop progressive pulmonary fibrosis. Of those patients, there are some at higher risk, which include patients who have rheumatoid arthritis-related interstitial lung disease, and that may be because of all the connective tissue diseases that cause interstitial lung disease. Rheumatoid arthritis is the one that is most often associated with the UIP pattern. But even patients with, say, systemic sclerosis, where they can have a nonspecific interstitial pneumonia pattern on CT scan or on biopsy, can have fibrosis develop and develop progressive pulmonary fibrosis. Got it. And we will dive more into sort of PPF and the suggested management later on in our segment. But let's rewind a little bit and just review IPF for the listeners. What are the typical features of IPF? You mentioned some of this already, and how do we usually diagnose it? Sure. So idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis has been defined as a chronic fibrosing interstitial pneumonitis or interstitial lung disease. And the idiopathic means that after a very thorough evaluation, we cannot find a cause. I would recognize a patient with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis or IPF generally clinically as a patient in their late 50s, 60s, or older. It is more often men than women. They are more often cigarette smokers. They often present with a cough that can be present for a while and then some shortness of breath on exertion. There are typical radiographic and or histopathologic findings, and that is the usual interstitial pneumonia pattern. Now, that was originally defined pathologically, but thin section CT scans have become of such high quality that we can pretty confidently in many, but not all cases, make a diagnosis of a usual interstitial pneumonia pattern on CT scan. When we see that, We don't generally send patients for biopsy because we know 85 to 90% of the time, depending on how strongly the usual interstitial pneumonia pattern is manifest on the CT, we know that that's what we will find histopathologically. And because there is some risk to a surgical lung biopsy, which had been the gold standard for histopathological diagnosis, because there's risk of morbidity and even mortality in patients with interstitial lung disease, we don't do that VATS biopsy anymore when we can make the diagnosis on CT. Got it. And I think some of us will remember from board examinations, the the catchphrase honeycombing or the CT appearance of IPF. Can you just sort of describe to us 
what we're looking for there and maybe distinguish it from some of the mimics, such as emphysema or traction bronchiectasis. I was actually taught in residency that honeycombing must be multi-layered, but I learned recently that that's not true. So maybe you can dispel some myths for us and explain what it is. Sure. Happy to do so. So radiographically, what you are looking for is that generally the radiographic findings of usual interstitial pneumonia tend to be more peripheral. They often are more basal or predominant, although we've learned they can occur in the mid and upper lobes as well. And if we find honeycombing, which are these small, round, cystic spaces, if you visualize a honeycomb, that is what they look like, we can be confident if there is not a lot of ground glass or something to suggest another finding like air trapping, which we might see in hypersensitivity pneumonitis, that we have a usual interstitial pneumonia pattern. If the patient does not have honeycombing, and you are right, they only need to be one layer, and we make that point in the current guidelines and have some very nice radiographic images and descriptions for people to look at and learn. If you don't have honeycombing, you can also make a diagnosis of what we call probable UIP. Now, in fact, in this guideline, we talk about the fact that traction bronchiectasis and honeycombing are a continuum. And so what is happening is that the bronchiolar cysts in the setting of this usual interstitial pneumonia fibrosis collapse and the fibrotic alveolar septae become uh, collapsed and then there's dilation of the terminal airways. And so you can actually scroll up and down on the CT and follow this traction bronchiectasis or bronchiolectasis, the tiny airways up and down. And at the extreme of this, at the edge of the lung, is the honeycomb fibrosis. So I don't know. I hope that maybe is helpful. Yeah, that is extremely helpful. And I don't think I've heard it explained that way. And that lays out a great framework for us to think about those changes. So let's say we have a patient who does have some changes on the CT suggestive of IPF, but not slam dunk for UIP pattern. And we as a team decide that biopsy should be obtained. What are the different ways that we can obtain lung tissue and what are the ways we can make it very safe for the patient or as safe as can be? You could add a transbronchial biopsy to that bronchoscopy. That is old school. And the pieces of tissue are so small that we generally don't recommend performing that procedure in most patients because it doesn't add to our diagnostic yield. And so we would then have been sending the patient off for a surgical videoscopic. So the incisions are small, but videoscopic assisted thoracoscopic surgical lung biopsy. And while that is a much smaller incision and a less invasive procedure than the old surgical lung biopsies, the lung that is affected by interstitial lung disease is rather sensitive. And so when the lung gets collapsed during that procedure, and then also perhaps the high oxygen levels that are used, and then the biopsy itself, patients can have an acute worsening following this procedure and even mortality from that up to two to 5% of patients. And so we do really try and avoid that surgical lung biopsy. So in the guidelines, we're talking about a new uh, technique called transbronchial lung cryobiopsy. That technique freezes the tissue and allows the operator to get a bigger piece of tissue than you'd get with a transbronchial biopsy and in the right hand, so it can be done safely without bleeding or pneumothorax, an inner center of excellence where a histopathologist is used 
to looking at these type of specimens, a diagnosis of either IPF, um, which was not apparent by a UIP pattern on CT, or an alternate diagnosis because you see lots of airway-centered granulomas, as you might expect to see in hypersensitivity pneumonitis. And so uh, that procedure, we made a conditional recommendation for, but should only be done in centers of excellence with experience doing that procedure. Dr. Shrek, how does that procedure, the, the accuracy of it, compare to surgical lung biopsy? So we talked about diagnostic yield um, in the guidelines, which was thought by the methodologist to be the, rather than sensitivity and specificity. Um, and that was defined as a number of procedures that led to a histopathologic diagnosis over the total number of procedures. And the diagnostic yield of transbronchial lung cryobiopsy was 79% and went up to 85% if three or more specimens were obtained. So pretty good. I mean, I suppose if the VATS lung biopsy is a gold standard, <laughs> one might think that that's 100%. It isn't actually. And there is a category of interstitial lung disease that we refer to as unclassifiable. And that is actually a specific diagnosis and occurs up to 10 to even 15% of the time. And so even with a surgical lung biopsy, the diagnostic yield is not 100%, but generally thought to be quite, quite high. Thanks for clarifying. Maybe we can move on to management. And we don't have to be super specific about this because I imagine most general practitioners are not the ones prescribing these antifibrotics, but maybe you can just mention some of the antifibrotics and what side effects or other things a general practitioner should be looking out for if these patients are in our clinics. Sure. So in 2014, there were two pivotal studies that led to the approval in the same year at the same time of two different antifibrotic agents. One is called perfinidone and the other is nintenanib. And both were approved for the treatment of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. They're oral medications, and they ultimately work by downregulating TGF-beta, which signals for lung fibrosis in patients who have IPF. And both were found, even though they work on different pathways, to slow the progression of the worsening and forced vital capacity, which was the primary outcome in these rigorous placebo-controlled blinded randomized trials by 50% at one year. So unfortunately, if you're listening, we're slowing progression. We're not resulting in improvement. And because of that, there is not good data for improvement in patient reported outcomes like cough, which can be terribly debilitating or shortness of breath or need for oxygen. So while these are big advances, they absolutely do make a difference in terms of slowing progression. And we think ultimately in long-term outcomes, they aren't going to take a patient who has significant or advanced fibrosis and make them better. As you mentioned, they do have some side effects. Both have gastrointestinal issues but with the perfinidone needing to be taken three times a day with food because otherwise there can be some queasiness or nausea associated with it or dyspepsia. Whereas nintenanib in a certain percentage of patients causes diarrhea, which can be mild, which that's more common or more severe, which there is a lower dose that can be used in that case, or treatment limiting. Both can result in weight loss and both can cause uh, modest elevations in liver function tests with nintenanib occasionally associated with a more significant increase in liver function test. And so both are labeled such that one needs to check 
liver function tests on a monthly basis for three to six months, and then can do that less frequently if the LFTs remain normal. Got it. And you had mentioned some of these other symptoms and comorbidities that these patients have. How are these treated, such as cough or hypoxemia? So the hypoxemia is easy. Just like a patient with COPD or emphysema, if uh, they walk and their oxygen saturation falls to 88%, they qualify for home oxygen. And that is very helpful for patients who have IPF or progressive pulmonary fibrosis with the caveat that as patients progress, the oxygen need can become quite substantial and that can become more difficult to administer at home. And in fact, the nice portable oxygen systems, that point of care oxygen systems that allow patients to get on a plane and travel and try and lead a more normal life only deliver up to about four to five liters per minute. So if patients need more oxygen than that, as the disease progresses, then we switch to tanks and it becomes more difficult for the patient to travel. I'm telling you a lot about oxygen because I'd like to really avoid talking about cough (laughs) because unfortunately it is so difficult to treat. It is very, very debilitating. Patients often have been told this due to sinus disease, Perhaps in some patients it is, as I think the airway is a continuum, but addressing sinus disease as we usually do in nasal steroids, nasal irrigation really only helps a very small percentage of patients. We wonder about reflux. And so some patients will then have that treated, especially if there's some reason to think with symptoms or even formal testing that reflux is playing a role. But again, I find that the minority of patients in whom the cough really, really improves significantly by treating GERD. And so then we're left with uh, trying things like gabapentin because truly the cough may be in some patients a neurological stimulation from the intrinsic lung disease to the brain. And so there can be some benefit to gabapentin. The problem is it's also very sedating. Rarely and certainly in the advanced stages, I will use narcotic cough medicines so that the patients have some relief at night. Patients will say that if they use oxygen, especially before they start to move about, um, which can trigger cough in some patients, that oxygen therapy can actually be of benefit. There was one study that was a post hoc analysis that suggested perfinogen might have a benefit in a subset of patients with IPF with cough. And I certainly tell my patients that there was no demonstrated improvement in patient-reported outcomes in the trials with the antifibrotics, but I do have the occasional patient who will tell me, I feel a little better, my shortness of breath is a little better, my cough is a little better. So certainly one can hope that the antifibrotics might have a bit of a benefit, but we can't count on that. And so a lot more work needs to be done and is being done on looking at how to treat cough in patients with pulmonary fibrosis. Yeah. In my experience with these patients, I have heard a lot about the complaints of cough and it always felt so humbling to not be able to do much for them. You had mentioned anti-reflux medication and sort of treating GERD, and there's a recommendation in this set of guidelines about that. So can you just speak a little bit about that? Because I remember also in residency, it was sort of in vogue to put all these people on acid suppression. Yeah, it was. And patients still come to me. And when I ask them, do you have symptomatic reflux or did you, oh no, well, how did you end up on the PPI? Well, my doctor thought it would be a good treatment for my IPF. So we did indeed readdress the issue of anti-reflux medications and did a systematic and rigorous methodological review led by our methodologist 
into the literature on reflux in patients with IPF. And the issues are that the quality of evidence still remains poor, and that in most studies, patients were not prescribed anti-reflux meds based on whether they had reflux, but were often prescribed uniformly, or the observational study was looking at all comers. And so because of that, when we were doing the analysis, there wasn't good evidence to make a recommendation for antacids. And so there was a conditional recommendation for not treating empirically with anti-reflux meds to improve the IPF. Now, the caveat is if they have reflux, of course, we want to address that because there is the thought that in the subset of patients, it might be that microaspiration is playing a role even in airway uh, and lung disease injury and fibrosis. I will say a number of these patients do develop hiatal hernias and whether it's a chicken or the egg, whether they had that and that contributed to their fibrosis or whether the fibrosis and the exaggerated respiratory efforts leads to and weakening and the diaphragm and development of hiatal hernia. Somebody with a large hiatal hernia, if their lung function and their fibrosis is not extremely advanced, I certainly would consider and send some of them for laparoscopic hiatal hernia repair. Thank you for that. And as a hospitalist myself, sometimes I've seen these patients admitted for what we call IPF flares. Can you just describe a little bit how we actually diagnose that and what we need to roll out before we call it that and then how it's treated? Yes. And I want to thank you, thank you, thank you for taking care of these patients because I generally do admit them to the hospital when they have a flare, or we also call it an acute exacerbation because they're really sick. And so um, what we're looking for is a thorough evaluation to look for a cause of the acute worsening or do they have an infection? Okay. Last couple of years, COVID would be one of the first things, of course, that we'd be looking for. Previously, it would have been influenza and or another infection. In addition, we're looking for thromboembolic disease and particular, of course, pulmonary embolism, which is known to occur at an increased rate in patients with IPF. And then we theorize about other causes, including micro aspiration. Of course, we're looking for macro aspiration. But in any case, the patient with IPF has an acute worsening, usually defined as less than 30 days of increasing respiratory symptoms and new bilateral ground glass opacities on the CT scan. And then, of course, we exclude other causes. And of course, heart failure would be something else we would want to look into and address. And if it remains a acute exacerbation, um, by definition, excluding another cause that we can treat, then we generally give corticosteroids, although there are some who think that there is not enough evidence, which is true, to justify that. However, we don't have any other therapies. And uh, when you've seen a patient with an acute exacerbation who miraculously does respond to corticosteroids, it makes it hard to withhold for other patients. Although, of course, they're associated with considerable morbidity when given in high doses, which is generally how the treatment goes in the hospital. These patients histopathologically, when biopsies were done, we certainly don't do that generally anymore, had diffuse alveolar damage or organizing pneumonia. So the patients with diffuse alveolar damage, it's like ARDS, right? And are we really going to make them a whole lot better with steroids? But the patient with organizing pneumonia are probably the patients in whom the corticosteroids make a big difference. And so generally, there is a period of time in which the patient is given some corticosteroids. I generally start with some IV steroids to ensure delivery. 
but I'm not using that 1,000 milligrams a day that I think we used to use a little bit more routinely. And so generally using somewhat lower doses, 60 to 100 milligrams for a few days, and then trying to get the steroids down to less toxic doses. And in the patient in whom it's not clear it's making a difference, try and more rapidly taper those off. Yeah. And we'll probably talk about lung transplantation after we talk about PPF for a little bit. So let's just switch gears and talk about progressive pulmonary fibrosis contrasted to idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis by having sort of an underlying cause that we know of. You had mentioned before that it entails treating the underlying disease. Are there other managements that we do for it? And would you use antifibrotics in these patients as well? Yes. And that in fact is in part what led to the feeling that we needed to be more formal in our definition of what progressive pulmonary fibrosis PPF was, because um, there was the concern that there would be kind of the unblocked treatment with antifibrotic therapy for kind of anybody who had a bit of fibrosis on a CT scan. And so there was a well-done randomized placebo-controlled trial looking at an intentive called the InBuild trial uh, published in the New England Journal that showed a similar having of the decline in the vital capacity in patients who received nintenanib compared to patients who received placebo. And so that trial led to the approval of nintenanib for patients who had fibrotic hypersensitivity pneumonitis or rheumatoid arthritis interstitial lung disease with progression, but it was not entirely clear until I think these guidelines how that progression should be defined. And certainly there will be our colleagues who think a different definition of progression perhaps should have been rendered. And I think we're very humble on recognizing that these are guidelines, their guidance for now, based on our international expert panel's best assessment of the literature as we found it presently. And when we think about very sick patients with fibrotic lung diseases, whether it's IPF or PPF, we think of sort of advanced care planning and then the potential for lung transplantation in these patients. Can you just speak a little bit about that and what sort of patient might be a candidate for that procedure and what are some contraindications? Sure. So there are some of my transplant colleagues who will say that any patient on diagnosis of IPF should be referred to a transplant physician, not to be listed for a transplant, but to be evaluated. And so that that is considered as a therapy in the appropriate patient in a timely fashion. And so that therapy is also offered or lung transplant to patients with progressive pulmonary fibrosis. And in fact, all the time we see patients who have a progressive rheumatologic pulmonary fibrosis or a fibrotic hypersensitivity pneumonia related progressive fibrosis that undergo lung transplantation at our and other centers. Optimal candidates are patients, I hate to give an age cutoff, and that is actually changing. And so what I'll say is that patients into their certainly early to mid-70s really can be good candidates for a lung transplantation. What we're looking for is a physiologic rather than an actual age. And so physiologically otherwise healthy. So the absence of other major comorbidities like advanced heart disease, severe osteoporosis, or other issues that would make the lung transplantation difficult. And so generally referring an IPF patient a little earlier in the course, 
again, not to be listed. I feel like my job as a non-transplant ILD physician is to keep the patient from needing a transplant for as long as possible. But we want to make sure that they're ready to go when they need it. And likewise, a subset of patients with PPF certainly will be transplant candidates. Sure. And Dr. Streck, can you just give us a glimpse into the future and maybe what are some of the advances that are occurring in this field and what are the next hurdles that we need to jump to help advance the care of these patients? So some of the things we're thinking about is early diagnosis, because the earlier we start therapy, if we're going to have the decline, we'd like to start when the vital capacity is much closer to normal than having the decline when the fibrosis is more advanced. So how can we pick up patients who have pulmonary fibrosis at an earlier stage? That in part relies on the general practitioner and the general pulmonologist to be listening carefully in the clinic on a bare chest around the sides as well for crackles. Because if crackles are present, a further evaluation for pulmonary fibrosis really should be undertaken. In addition, oximetry, which we do all the time now when a patient sits, but maybe we just have them with a portable oximeter on their finger walk up and down the hallway as patients age and make sure that that saturation doesn't decline. That would be another clue. And then there are computer-assisted and machine learning techniques that are being applied to CT scans once they're done. And as we're rolling out low-dose CT scans for patients who are cigarette smokers at risk of lung cancer, we're really hoping that we can pick up some of these patients with early pulmonary fibrosis and intervene. But of course, we need better therapies. And there is lots of interest and a number of trials ongoing looking at additional antifibrotic therapies. I imagine it's going to be like chemotherapy or treatment for pulmonary hypertension, where we'll be using probably multiple agents that attack multiple pathways. My real dream is the prevention of pulmonary fibrosis, but that right now remains a dream. How that could happen is if we as medical care providers were able to prevent people from picking up a cigarette in their teens so that we had almost uniformly a population of non-smokers because pulmonary fibrosis is in fact, like emphysema, a cigarette smoking related disease. So that is the hope for the future. Less pulmonary fibrosis and that that we do have is picked up earlier with better treatments. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think prevention would be so key. As a pediatrician myself, I understand the value of that in trying to prevent the disease from occurring in the first place. Dr. Streck, is there anything else that you would like to talk about or that we have not mentioned yet on this podcast? I guess the only other thing is this psychological and emotional burden for the patient um, with having this disease and having the diagnosis. And so when we were trying to come up with the best name for the progressive pulmonary fibrosis that we were seeing in the non-IPF patient, we did end up choosing progressive pulmonary fibrosis because we thought it was a recognizable name and similar to idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. But one of my worries is that when the patient goes and Googles those terms, they see that the median survival may be three to five years. I think that is changing and will continue to change. But the patients live with that. And unlike cancer, we don't have a chemotherapy that we can be assured will cure them. So I think that we need to be thinking about how we can address that with earlier intervention with palliative care, which actually involves training more palliative care doctors and more palliative care doctors who have an interest in taking care of patients 
with pulmonary fibrosis. So that would be, I think, my last comment. I think we could, as a group of care providers, try and do better there because I think it would be really helpful for our patients. Thank you. And thank you for advocating for this group of patients. Well, that wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults. I'd like to thank Mary Streck for joining us today to discuss the latest ATS updates in IPF and progressive pulmonary fibrosis. We are always looking for ways to improve our podcast and educational material. So if you have any comments or suggestions, please leave a review on iTunes or email us at resident360 at nejm.org. We would also like to form a focus group to get more formal feedback. So if you're interested in participating, please also email resident360 at nejm.org. Our production team at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Lynn Winston-Perry, Kyle Simmons, Mike Thomases, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Also, a special thanks to our NEJM Education Editor, Dr. O.P. Havnick. Curbside Consults is brought to you by NEJM Resident 360, a product of NEJM Group.